Hello, this is Payments and More, the Alive Show. I'm Nico, CEO of Alive. Each week, I will be interviewing women and men of our industry. I will ask them about their business journey, the lessons they learned. I want to know their opinions and point of view about payments and more. I will push them to show us a different perspective, to tell us what's hot now and in the future for our industry. Enjoy the ride. This is Payments and More. Today, our guest is Catherine Tong, 20 years of experience in e-commerce risk and fraud prevention. She started her career at Tesco, then led the Acertify European expansion. On this show, we will discuss with Catherine very hot topics, the position of each stakeholders of the industry regarding the SCA in Europe. Catherine will give us tips for merchants with a very interesting position We'll also learn about the situation of women in the payment sector. You will also have the opportunity to win a one-week trip for two to Ibiza with a person of your choice with our famous Allies Box game. Finally, we'll dig into Catherine's best-kept personal secrets, amongst those how she met Richard Branson, the founder of the Virgin Group. Welcome to Payments and More, the Allies show. Enjoy the ride. Catherine, welcome to Payments and More, the Allies show today. Great to be here, Nico. So I know, Catherine, you have a 10-year-old dog, a cocker spaniel. So if we hear somebody snoring, it's not me, it's your dog. We all agree <laughs> on that. Yes, no, that's that's absolutely correct. Unfortunately, he uh, he enjoys relaxing a little bit too much sometimes. But uh, I'll try and keep him quiet for the next half an hour or so. Perfect. Let's go then. So over 20 years of experience in the payment world is well over the threshold of 15 years to be in this show. Great to have you today. Eight years as a PwC auditor, and then you moved to Tesco, where your role was almost immediately made redundant after a few months of joining Tesco. And that was the best move of your life. Explain me a little bit of that. When I first moved to Tesco, I decided that after training to be an accountant, that maybe that's, that wasn't the longer term career for me. So I decided to move into industry. But in that, that move to industry, unfortunately, one of the projects that I was working on and Tesco had put a lot of investment into, it was around the time of the financial crisis. And unfortunately, the funding for that project got pulled and therefore my role was made redundant, which at a fairly young age, that was a bit of a shock to the system, I have to admit, in terms of what did I do wrong? What do I do next? What does my career look like from here forward? But I was really fortunate because the people that I worked with within Tesco knew that my background was in fraud when I worked at PwC. And they also knew that as the e-commerce business of Tesco was growing at the time, they'd started to have uh, some real challenges from a fraud perspective. And so they asked me to work on a three-month project. Could I help them resolve the fraud problem? And then they'd find another project for me to, to move on to. And that was the start of my career in e-commerce fraud. And uh, of course, I didn't realise at the time what, uh, what the future held, but it's addictive. And I'm definitely a bit of a fraud geek. Love the topic. I've enjoyed seeing it from so many different angles, working at both Tesco, then a certify, and uh, of course, with allies as well, seeing lots of different perspectives. You took over indeed after the, the, your role at Tesco, uh, the role of General Manager Europe of a certify and Inoth. You're also a co-founding partner of Allies. You're also the UK country ambassador of European 
women in payment. You spend your life in fraud prevention in Europe and no SEA arrives. Is it the end of fraud and fraud providers? Is it the end of your career? (laughs) (laughs) It's a really interesting question, Nico, because certainly when um, it was first being talked about many years ago, that was certainly an initial reaction for many people in the industry. Is this the end of fraud, certainly as we know it? And does that mean that we're not going to have uh, the careers that we knew at that point in time going forward? But I think anyone who has worked in in any aspect of the fraud industry knows that as soon as you put a barrier in place, all it means is the fraudsters are going to change their behaviour and they'll just find another way to achieve whatever they're trying to achieve. So from a strong customer authentication perspective, then yes, it definitely changes the landscape in Europe as to how fraud is mitigated. But it does also mean that fraud is going to start changing and evolving and lots of different ways that we're already seeing that happening in its simplest form it's still payment fraud that's happening but using international bins so non-european bins and certainly from some merchants i've spoken with they're already seeing that trend happening seeing at least attempts in fraud being higher on international bins but of course there's also other types of fraud friendly fraud mainly first party fraud that isn't really covered by SCA, and that will start to see an increase. So for retailers, returns fraud being a, a particular challenge, for example. So I think it's an exciting time. It's changing, it's evolving, and that's what keeps us all on our toes. Perfect. We have a lot of auditors that uh, are coming from the, the fraud prevention, so that's not the end of their career. Catherine, all our guests get an award and uh, we, we like to praise our guests. That's the only moment of the show where you cannot speak. And I wanted to share something with you. We all read many news and papers published around SEA lately. My opinion is that 90% of them are inaccurate or very biased. The figures reported are either for lobbying perspective uh, or, or to sell a solution undercovered. You took the challenge to interview 70 issuers, merchants, PSPs, and acquirers over the last year on the topic. As a matter of fact, this content is available on the ICATA website. We, we've been doing that for ICATA. Congratulations for that, because I don't know anybody in the industry who has spoken to 70 players and stakeholders of this new SC environment without, you know, uh, giving an opinion on it. So my duty today is to mix this knowledge. So let's let's get into that. SCA, is it good or bad? It's good. And it's I'm good. Going, so, I'm going to be very bold in saying that. It's a good thing. And the whole premise behind SCA was to help to maybe not solve the security problem, but certainly to find a, a different way to be able to make sure that customers and uh, consumers felt that they could transact safely online. And so there's lots of different ways that that's been tried over time, but that's absolutely been at the heart of the regulation. And it's something that any stakeholder, whether you're the consumer, the issuer, the merchant, the PSP, everybody is aligned that uh, secure e-commerce is a very important factor. But what SCA also set out to do is bring innovation into the industry as well and to try and find new ways to bring that security. And we're certainly seeing that already. So 3D Secure was maybe the closest or the the de facto tool that was used initially for strong customer authentication. But already we're seeing that evolve with things like the FIDO Alliance, who've introduced their authentication services, and that's starting to gain traction as well. 
But ultimately, we're trying to give security to the industry while maintaining good authorization rates, frictionless journeys for customers so that people can still buy what they want to online. All those stakeholders you interviewed, I'm very interested in knowing what do they think? What's their position regarding SEA? So let's start with issuer. What is the position of issuers? So it's really hard to group this into a generic category of issuers. How I'm going to answer that question is I'm going to break it down into two broad groups of issuers. You have those large issuers that have very high volumes. They've got a a large portfolio of card members. And then you have the longer tail of card issuers who have much, much smaller portfolios. The reason that that's important in the same way that any stakeholder in this process has decisions to make on what investments do I make in any year and what resources do I have to address the things that I would like to. And of course, the large issuers have got more resources available to them, whether that's people, whether that's technology. And so for those larger issuers, you've got the larger cardholder portfolios. Generally speaking, they seem to have been able to invest in a technology that allows them to consume all the extra data that's coming with the higher versions of 3D Secure, for example. There's a lot more data available for them to consume to help them make better fraud decisions. But then they've also got the ability to invest in the machine learning that allows them to interpret all of that extra data. Whereas the longer tail of issuers don't have such resources in place and particularly being able to consume and be able to make sense of all the extra data they're receiving, their approach has been more about being compliant than it has about being focused on making the best decisions possible. And I think that's going to be really interesting to see how that evolves over the next weeks, months and years, because ultimately any issuer wants to be top of a consumer's wallet. They want to know that when a consumer goes to pay for something, it's their card that's going to be the first choice that's used. And so I certainly see the issuers who have been good at creating that frictionless journey by being able to analyse all this extra data. They're the ones who are going to win that top of wallet battle. That's a fair point, because at the end of the day, issuer uh, had bad press in all this uh, SCA story. We've witnessed a lot of efforts, of course, but uh, they have a a strong interest for SCA to be uh, smoothless and very successful, right? Exactly. For me, it's a competitive advantage that's uh, an opportunity waiting to be taken on the issuer side. So for issuers, a competitive advantage. Now let's speak about PSPs and acquirers. What role are they playing? Are, Are they still trying to do something about it or they are just passing on the ball and say now everything is on the shoulders of issuers? So it's interesting how the PSPs are approaching this, absolutely. And I'm hearing two camps, again, from the PSP space, because there are some merchants, and I'm going to talk about this initially from the merchant perspective, there are some merchants who are saying that their PSP is doing a good job They are following the strategy that the merchant has defined, whether that's helping them to manage exemptions, whether that's giving them some analysis and perspective on the results of the FCA regulation. But then there's also a large proportion of merchants who feel like they don't know what's what's happening. And so from the PSP perspective, I think there's two strategies that seem to be coming into play. One is to make sure that absolutely they're facilitating this regulation and that they are processing transactions as required. So that might be allowing exemptions to be used. It's uh, helping to identify which transactions are out of scope. But of course, fundamentally making sure that 
the right data is being passed and also the right flags are being passed onto the issuer community to optimise the opportunity for transactions to be authorised. But there's also a big lack of data that's available to understand how well that process is working. That might be data that helps to spot where maybe data isn't being populated as expected. That's data where to understand how exemptions are being applied and which exemptions are more successful to help inform an exemption management strategy. But there's also the technology that not all PSPs are are able to, to provide around what version of authentication is going to be best for that merchant. So even just looking at 3D Secure, for example, PSPs that are able to facilitate using 3D Secure 1.0 and then each of the versions of 3D Secure 2.1, 2.2, and as that evolves, I see a really big difference in the services that are provided by PSPs to enable merchants to fluctuate between all of those different variables and giving that flexibility. And ultimately, it's that flexibility that's going to drive the, the best optimization. So certainly, I'm seeing a, a big distinction in the services PSPs are providing at the moment. Let's move to uh, merchants. The merchant. Do they need to be active? Are they active? What's your feeling? So I'll start with your second question, actually. Are they active? There are some certainly who are, and I think many people will have seen some of the statistics that are provided by some merchants quite publicly, being able to see how 3D Secure in particular is working for them and where it's failing and the reasons it's failing, and even breaking that down by geography. But I would say the large majority of merchants right now are waiting to see how strong customer authentication is going to stabilise. So for a lot of merchants, as I mentioned, PSPs aren't always able to give the data that's needed for a merchant to understand, well, what's happening with the flow of my transactions? Are they going through exemptions? When they are, is that a good thing? Are my customers having a positive experience? And so where merchants are left is they're having to look at their authorization rates usually at the very top level, to see is there stability there. And generally speaking, from the merchants I've spoken with, they're saying that there was maybe a little bit of a decline initially, but there's nothing too frightening and they're comfortable that over time that's only going to improve. Whereas those merchants are doing a little bit of digging and understanding what's happening, maybe at an issuer level, maybe at a country level, they're detecting some really big variations And in detecting those variations, they're starting to update their checkout flows, their checkout pages to help improve authorization rates. So I'm sure you were referring to the Microsoft uh, Scott Card. That is a fantastic. It's a, it's a very advanced work uh, and a good thing to monitor. Although we are always saying it applies only to one sector. If somebody wants to see this scorecard, uh, we have put a, a link in our LinkedIn page. Exemptions are merchants. I mean, everybody is aiming, I suspect, to to have a maximum of transactions going through those exemptions. Is it something really happening or too early? It's a really interesting question, actually, because if I think back to when SCA was first being talked about and talked about in the context of 3D Secure is going to be mandated for all of Europe. Merchants initially, and particularly outside of the UK, where 3D Secure has had a lower penetration, there was the real fear factor of, oh my goodness, how are my consumers going to react? That's going to be horrible from an authorization perspective. But actually now SCA is going live and is evolving. 
a lot of merchants have taken the view, well, I haven't seen the Armageddon that maybe some feared they would have from an authorization perspective. Let me see how this goes. Because if I don't need to manage exemptions, and if I don't need to put extra effort in to be able to keep authorizations where they have been historically, then it's not worth my time and energy to look at this new tool and ability I have to decide who goes through that authentication and that step up process. And so this is where it comes back to doing a little bit of digging and understanding actually at a top level, it might look fine. But once you start digging, you can see there are opportunities for improvement. Actually being aware that there's an opportunity to increase your authorization rates coming out of SCA and that staying consistent might mean that you fall behind your competition, for example, because for those who are monitoring it and adapting so that you're more appealing to the consumer, in the same way we talked about with issuers, it's going to become a competitive advantage because it's going to be much easier to shop. So no exemptions I don't see being actively managed by a lot of merchants today. A lot of them are leaving it to their PSPs to route transactions as they see appropriate. But I do think that that's a a big opportunity for the future. So I love to be different and to have different point of views. If you want to hear another point of view about SCA, there is another episode of this show uh, where Peter Bellet is giving his point of view. Peter, of course, is coming from uh, 20 years of uh, risk prevention at Visa. So it's very interesting to to compare uh, both positions. Your golden minute has arrived, Catherine. Let's imagine for a minute you're the president of the global merchant community and you're addressing uh, this community in their, say, uh, yearly convention. This is your opening speech. What would you say to those merchants about SCA? What would you recommend to them? I would say grab the opportunity. It's definitely something to be embraced and to make sure that you are grasping that opportunity and not letting your competitors get one step ahead of of where they are today. As I talked about just now, sourcing the data, this allows you to be able to dig a little bit into how your payment performance is currently, and then being able to see how you can optimise that payment performance. You can improve where you're at today and you can significantly increase your revenues. So I guess really what I'm saying is don't be happy with the status quo. Look to improve because those opportunities are certainly out there. Thank you. I'm sure the merchant will listen to you. Before we get into the women in payment world, which is a topic that passionates me, we are going to play our game. So I have a box on my desk, Catherine. Inside the box, there is something related to payments. The audience can guess what is in the box. You can give them some hints. You can listen to other releases of the Ally show in order to have more hints. And if you win and guess what's inside the box, you can win a week of holiday to Ibiza for two from anywhere in the world. To play, our audience must post their answer on our LinkedIn page or leave a message on our web. You can help those listeners with one question. You can ask one question and I will answer. It will be the additional tip to guess what's inside the box. What will be your question? So it's a box with something in it. Is there a logo on the box? On the object that is inside the box. On the box, there is the Allies logo. Rest assured of that. On the object inside the box, you have two logos. And the audience has to guess the two logos. Next tip on the next episode, of course. Good luck to everybody. And let's move to the woman in payment. So I take the opportunity to say that five of the eight Allies co-founders are women. 
two members of the LGBT community and we have eight nationalities. So I think we, we tick almost all the boxes here. We did not win an award yet, but we, we still have hope. You are in charge of this community for the British payment sector. Is there a need for such a movement? Yes, there is, is, is the short answer. So as, as you mentioned, Nico, I've been in the industry from different perspectives for the last 20 years. And one of the things I've seen evolve and change over that time is certainly the profile when you're looking from a gender perspective of participants in the industry. It's definitely becoming more balanced, but there's definitely more, more work to be done as well. And I do think it's really important to make sure that overall within the industry, within an organisation, within teams, it's really important to make sure that you've, you've got a balance of, of people within that, whether that's gender, race, uh, whatever angle you decide to look at. And certainly what I found when I was talking to people and in particular women within my team was that they didn't feel that they had a pool of people that they could look up to and aspire to or that they could go to from a, a mentoring perspective to help guide them and give them advice on how to go where they wanted to with their careers, how to balance their, their overall lifestyles. And so as these types of initiatives, such as the European Women in Payments Network is setting up, having the ability to bring together networks of women that allow you to understand common topics and common issues, but also on a more personal level interact is super important to help encourage people into our industry, but also once they're here to realise all of the opportunities and uh, things that there are to, to learn and uh, can certainly help um, in, in your career. How do you think we are comparing in the payment sector compared to other IT sectors or Um, it's a really good question, and it's actually a conversation I've had with the WPN. You know, how how does our industry compare with other maybe similar industries, but also looking at completely different industries as well? And it's not something that we've certainly been able to look at from a, a number of metrics perspective, but from um, I guess more of a, a an ad hoc view and perspective on that, I think we're we're doing a good job of encouraging people into the sector and I think people are starting the wider world if you like is starting to appreciate what the payments industry is all about certainly when I first first started working in this world I'd quite often get comments along the lines of well how hard can it be you put a credit card into a website it credits your money onto your account and you receive your products and services I think as things have evolved and people have become a lot more savvy on the internet understanding actually some of the complexity behind it And it does, as an industry, play to a lot of the traditional female traits, if you like, of being able to do the analysis and having that desire to dig into and investigate things and really get into the details. So I think the more that we can articulate some of the roles and some of the skill sets that are needed within the industry is incredibly helpful. And it's a fact that you could be an IT specialist, you could be a business specialist, you could come from an accounting background, all kinds of different skill sets are needed for really what is quite a broad industry covering lots of different subject matters and different skill sets as well. For those who are interested in having more data about women in payment, and if you are a member of the MRC, I know the MRC, the Merchant Wisconsin, is publishing every year a report about women in payment and the conclusions are, are very interesting. Look, Catherine, in our case, as CEO of Allies, I just went out to the market, selected the best people uh, 
I could meet, and it happened that five out of the eight were women. Do you have any recommendation for uh, whether is uh, willing to increase its involvement uh, into women payment as a company? What would be simple actions? As a company, the actions that can be taken is certainly encourage your employees, your in particular your female employees, to become parts of networks such as European Women in Payments. Having that broader industry perspective is fulfilling, you know, as, as an individual, but it can absolutely help you in uh, in your day job as well. Whether it's the the skills and knowledge that you're gaining, but also the the network of people that. Uh, that you become exposed to it's it's incredibly powerful and can I think what surprises a lot of the people who've joined our network it's really helped in ways that they weren't expecting when they first reached out to us or when we were able to do in-person events when they first met people at those events as well and so actively encouraging that and understanding the benefits that can be brought that's both for the organization and the individual you can't overdo that in my view. Good. And if you want to know more, I was surprised because I, I'm, I'm joining on a regular basis the meetings of EWPN or the Women in Payment Roundtable at the MRC. It's very interesting to see that 40% of the attendees are men. That's, that's quite a positive sign, right? It's not a group with women only. This is what I mean. Absolutely. And I remember one of the first events that we ran and actually the room was probably 95% women. And someone uh, came to the meeting a little late and a gentleman opened the door to come and join the meeting, looked at us and pretty much ran out the door slightly scared. That's when we knew that we needed to address that balance, because for the men that were in the room, they said it was incredibly helpful to hear a woman's perspective that they hadn't really thought about before and that they would think about either how they spoke, how they interacted or some of the initiatives that they were wanting to run within their teams they'd look at those in a very different way, having joined those sessions. So absolutely, it's really important to, to have that balance, albeit, yes, the focus and the topics are around supporting women in the industry. Thank you very much, Catherine, for your input on that topic. It's, it's very important to us, very close to us. I want to get a little bit more personal with you, Catherine. You met Richard Branson, one of your uh, idol, the founder of Virgin. Tell me a little bit about that encounter. <laughs> um, it was a little bit of an unfortunate encounter, uh, Nico. For for anyone that knows me, I'm not sporty. Um, I don't enjoy that kind of thing, but I do try most sports. Uh, I'll at least give them a go. And in this particular case, it was when I was learning to ski. And I met Richard Branson because I was pointing down a ski slope, was going far too fast, couldn't stop. Unfortunately, his children and then him were my crash barrier. So, yes, my meeting with Richard Branson was having taken out his his two children and then ended up crashed at his feet. No one was injured, apart from my pride, maybe. But, uh, yeah, it was a great way to meet uh, meet someone that actually at university I wrote my dissertation about. So I was a bit starstruck, I have to admit. Fabulous. You don't have a picture of that moment, no. I'm so happy to post it in our website. <laughs> no, I don't. Thankfully, it was before mobile phones. So, no, it's in my memory only. Fabulous story. Did you fail in your career, Catherine? Oh, yes, absolutely. And it's a bit cliche, I know, but that's that's definitely the way that you learn from the things that go wrong. Or when you look back, you think that really wasn't the best thing to have done. I could have done something different. I guess the one that sticks in my mind the most, because it was very early on in my career, though, was I mentioned earlier, I trained as an accountant when I was at PwC. 
And my goodness, those accounting exams were, were tough, really long hours, really hard work, but great in the sense that the way that I did those, it was with a, a group of peers and uh, it did have a great social side as well. But unfortunately, when it came to the third year and taking my final set of exams, I failed one. And it was really disheartening, of course, to fail that. But because it was the last set of exams, I then watched all of my peers progress and move on to their next roles and to the next stage in their career. And I was held back until I passed that exam. So that was a a really good focus for me as to, you know, you you do need to stay focused on the task in hand. And uh, that I certainly didn't enjoy watching my my peers progress on on ahead of me. It definitely uh, brought out the competitor aspect of my personality, I guess. So, yes, I had to reset. But the second time around, I was very fortunate because the topic of the final paper was fraud. And so maybe I should have seen that as a, an early sign that that's where my future career was going to head. That's another interesting topic. I read an article saying that the most successful professional career are by professionals who failed several times at university. You're on the good track, Catherine. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> you're, I'm told you're well, I know you're a fan uh, of concerts, of live concerts, rock concerts. The latest you, you've been uh, was an AHA concert. I saw you in a Bruno Mars concert in Madrid. Where do you want us to invite you next? <laughs> you know, just to go to a concert would be nice, Nico. It's been a, a long time. So AHA was 18 months ago now. It wasn't too long before we all started going down, uh, going into our, our lockdowns. And I, I just love listening to live music. As you say, I've been to rock concerts, uh, some very cheesy music, uh, as you've just described as well. I'm not so fussy about what I go to see, but I love live music and the atmosphere that brings and definitely missed having that and that kind of uh, night out and uh, in enjoying, enjoying the music. Who would I like to see? Well, actually, the next person I am going to see is Michael Bublé. He, he was cancelled from last year. So that's the next one that I will hopefully be going to. So I promise that next time we go to a concert together, we'll post a selfie in our LinkedIn page. That's a <laughs> note taken. We are reaching the end of our show. You can find Catherine on the ski slopes, but be careful or getting in touch with allies in one word of recommendation to stakeholders of the industry listening to us. In general, what you be uh, your two or three words, not one word. Okay, I give you three. I'm going to go for a statement rather than a word. The devil is in the detail. And that's something I learned when I was at PwC in particular, that by going down into the details, that's where you can really find your opportunities. And that is absolutely true in payments. So don't be scared of of doing some digging. You might uh, uncover some real gems. Thank you, Catherine. It was great to have you today. Thank you. Thanks for joining Payments and More, the Allies Show. If you enjoyed the interview as much as we did, please share this podcast with your network. Leave us a five-star review, of course, and subscribe now to Payments and More in Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. This is the best way not to miss any episode with great guests. You can find more information about our guests today and how to connect in the show notes or on Allies' website. Last, I'd love to hear from you. Please let me know your suggestion for the next episodes, guests to interview, topics to address, or questions you'd like me to ask to our guests in our Allies LinkedIn page or in the comments section of this podcast. See you in the next episode of Payments and More. I'm Nico. We are Allies. 